Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler on Wednesday, September 27th with a special uh, kind of strike guys edition of the podcast, which cannot be done, of course, without Elaine Lowe, who uh, now will somehow have to find a way to do her daily strike guys newsletter with only one strike in town. Elaine, are you going to be all right? I think I'll manage somehow. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> you need me to do some daily TV reviews or something to kind of keep the flow, you know, on a daily basis, whatever you need. I'm I'm here for it. There's you. only 160,000 people still out on strike, Sean. No, that's not going to be a daily cycle. What are you talking about? And we have a special guest today, uh, writer, uh, showrunner, and member of the uh, WGA Negotiating Committee, Adam Conover. Adam, thanks for joining, and uh, congratulations on the deal. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, It's a great day. How was your sleep on Saturday night versus Sunday night this past weekend? <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, once we were out of there and we actually knew we had a deal, I, I slept a lot better, uh, especially knowing how great the deal was. But, uh, you know, there was a couple days lag between us on the negotiating committee and board finding out what was in it and the membership finding out about it. Last night was the night we finally uh, were able to show the membership what their power won and you know, very, very happy with the response. As, as I'm recording this to, later today, we're going to do our big member meeting at the Palladium and and just really excited for everybody to be able to get together and talk about the deal as a community, you know? And speaking of the deal, like, uh, let's go over. There's a, there's a whole bevy of things included in this deal, which I think is surprising to a lot of people who were sort of expecting maybe some incremental movement. But, you know, when the Guild called this deal exceptional, that really raised expectations. And, you know, judging from the membership's reaction, action really met them. Let's go over a couple of the highlights. We have minimum staff sizing, viewership-based streaming bonuses, um, you know, some streaming data transparency, and of course, AI protections, which as I understand it, according to the Guild, is something that the studios didn't initially want to engage on back in May, along with, you know, a slew of other things, including improved payments and payment schedules for screenwriters, um, you know, better terms for writing teams, contributions to pension and health for them. Uh, am I missing anything from the highlight reel, Adam? I mean, I I'm glad you went through those last couple things because the headline here is that we were able to deliver for every single segment of of the guild's membership. Um, things like two-step deals for screenwriters, pension and health contributions for teams, uh, uh, script fees for staff writers, um, uh, minimum guaranteed weeks for comedy variety and other Appendix A writers, that's daytime and folks like that in streaming. Um, these are all things that we were told that they would never give us. These parts of the guild are too small. Nobody cares about those writers. Um, and you know, because our members use their power and stayed out on strike for 148 days, we were able to uh, get them to, to bend and eventually break on every single one of them. You know, it was a long 146 days, but it seems like a yeah. lot happened in the last five days of those from last Wednesday through last Sunday. Tell us a little bit about those last five days in the negotiating room. Well, those were the days that the companies finally decided to negotiate. You know, I mean, the entire strike up until that point, the, the, the point was to uh, get them to finally abandon the AMPTP's strategy of refusing to negotiate, uh, holding us out on strike and trying to force us to take the deal that they gave a different union. That has been their strategy for 40 years. And until you know, the, this last week, they never meaningfully negotiated over our issues. They refused to engage on every single one of them. Um, and, you know, the when people, you know, would say stuff like, oh, why don't both sides, you know, have to make compromises? Um, it was a total refusal on the AMPTP so, uh, side to engage on any of this. Once they finally saw reason and realized, oh, we actually have to negotiate on 
every single one of these, things moved very quickly because we were actually finally negotiating. You know, the, the Writers Guild is a very serious organization in terms of how we handle negotiating. We are good negotiating partners. We go back and forth. We make our moves. You know, we handle it professionally once they are actually willing to engage in the process. Where was Carol Lombardini in the last five days of this? Because by all reports, Disney's Bob Iger, you know, Warner Brothers Discovery's David Zaslav, Universal's Donna Langley and uh, Netflix's Ted Sarandos were in the room those last few days. So tell us a little bit about the dynamic from the other side in that last week. The role of the AMPTP and the role as Carol of the steward of the AMPTP is to be the no machine, right? And and I want to be really clear about this. She is the guardian of a 40-year ideology. When they, you know, when Nick Counter reformed and created the modern AMPTP, and it is the the purpose of this organization is to structure union negotiations in order to reduce union power as much as possible and reduce costs as much as possible. Um, this is like an ideology on their part and a 40 year long strategy. And she's the guardian of that strategy. And so her goal is to never allow a union to win ever. And so, you know, in large part, she was she was an impediment to making the deal because, you know, you had these CEOs that, oh my God, we, we're pushing movies. We got the fall schedule. We really got to get this going. Um, and, you know, Carol has the opposite incentive. And so really a lot of the story here is the AMPTP structure failed these companies. They boxed themselves in into this structure where uh, they were unable to negotiate because, you know, they require unanimity on their side. And if a couple, one or two companies don't want to negotiate, none of the ones that really, really wanted to could. Um, and we could talk, you know, we could speculate on what those divisions are. I don't have direct evidence about which company wanted to deal really badly, which didn't. You could look at which ones had the most debt on their balance sheet, which ones had the false schedule to worry about. Eventually, those companies that desperately needed a deal were able to sort of take power within the AMP. PTP and drive us towards one. But we still had, you know, Carol trying to stop a deal at every turn. And, you know, speaking of the individual names in that room, I feel like some really rose to prominence more than others in terms of becoming, um, you know, sort of a representative of, of the things that the studio stood for in the public eye. And I feel like the names that we didn't hear very much were, you know, Paramount's Bob Backish, uh, you know, Zach and Jamie over at Apple and, and Jen Salky over at Amazon. What do you think contributed to to some names becoming, you know, more larger in the public eye than others during the, the, the strike? Well, it depends on what what kind of public eye you mean. If you're if you're talking about the ones that came in for criticism, it's because of what they said in the press. You know, things like Ted Sarando saying that Netflix can last longer than any other company that they can weather a strike longer. Things like Bob Iger saying that, uh, um, you know, what writers and actors are asking for is unreasonable. That obviously brought them in for criticism. As for which. CEOs ended up in the room. That was clearly a deliberation between them. They, they sort of like put together, this is their panel of folks who are speaking for, for everybody, right? Um, in terms of uh, leaks that they've done from inside of the room where, you know, who said what, I think you can read a lot of that as certain executives trying to burnish their own image by making themselves look like the, the hero, right? And, and, and unless you're literally in the literal small room, it's a little bit difficult to tell, you know, what the divisions were between them. And I would, I would take those sort of like PR reports with a grain of salt because everybody wants to like come out looking good, right? And uh, they're all very good at, at, at burnishing their image. And, and to be honest, the individual personality 
qualities of the CEOs, I think, are not that important because really what we are doing is fighting against, a, a, you know, a structure that is designed to make sure that the people who actually create these shows get the least. That is what the strike is about. It's not about those individual people. Although I imagine the vibe uh, or just the, the general dynamic uh, is was a little different this time around than 2007 and 2008 when you're looking at the different players that constitute the AMPTP because this time around, obviously, you have Netflix and Apple and Amazon, really companies that are more tech pure plays, although, I mean, obviously, it's arguable about what to categorize Netflix in these days. But you have very different entities this time around than you do with, with mostly legacy studios the last time around. I mean, what's your what's your sense of, of how that impacted things? You know, uh, again, it's I agree with you that there's divisions between the companies. It's difficult to look inside the black box of the AMPTP and know exactly how those division play divisions played out. Obviously, you can look at Paramount and Apple and say these are two completely different companies that think about entertainment in completely different ways and say that th these companies have divisions between them. And our goal was to heighten that, those divisions, you know, and say, like, look, th these companies don't all have the same interests. Those that want to come to the table should need to take power and make a deal. That's what happened. I can't tell you which one of them was exerting pressure in which which direction, because, again, that's inside their black box. But I think the more important thing that was different from 2008 was the absolute solidarity and unanimity we had on the side of labor that writers held together for 148 days um uh took to the picket lines um had uh you know absolutely were in lockstep in the press and we had every other union in town on our side right we had IATSE respecting our picket lines we had the teamsters respecting our picket lines we had sag after deciding to go on strike themselves so uh, you know we can we can talk and gossip as much as we want about the ceos and the companies but the, the ultimate reason that we won is because of the power that the members had and that they used to make sure that these companies couldn't make another dollar. Um, you know, Apple and Paramount have different interests. What they have in common is that they don't make a single other additional dollar off of scripted entertainment until they make a deal with the writers. And that pressure was the same on all, might have operated in different ways internally, but we exerted that pressure on all of them. And that is ultimately why they came to the table was because of writer power and the power of the labor movement more broadly in town. Yeah. And speaking of that solidarity, I mean, I remember being out on the picket line so many times and seeing, you know, different IATSE locals from, mm -hmm. you know, costume designers to to, you know, camera operators, music folks. Uh, and, you know, IATSE itself has uh, a contract coming up next year. What do you think they can expect, uh, you know, in terms of solidarity from the writers and actors when it's their turn? I mean, we are going to be by them every step of the way. I mean, the 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 solidarity that IATSE members showed towards us um, is we're going to we're going to show it right back to them in every way that we can, you know, and uh, uh, we we're going to be encouraging our members to do so in, in, in to the extent that we're legally uh, able to do so under labor law. Um, and you're absolutely going to see writer led efforts to support those picket lines if IATSE were to take the step of going on strike. And I think one of the reasons that that uh, we got that solidarity from those other unions is because those other unions also have big problems. You know, uh, they, they are also being squeezed by the AMPTP. And so unions in this town that traditionally took a little bit more of a, you know, company friendly approach or, or maybe uh, just a little bit uh, less of a confrontational approach no longer have that option because their members are pissed off. Their members are demanding a better contract. They're demanding militancy and um, uh, a, a fight. And 
you know, they, the, the leadership of those unions has to give it to them. And that's a, that's a good thing, right? The more unions are fighting together, the more that we're going to win overall. And I think this strike really, really proved that, that like, oh, when we do it together, we win big. Because what we did in this negotiation was we won things that they swore they would never give us. We got a view-based residual for the first time. And now every other union is going to be able to go ask for that as well, because we won it with our power and with the power of every other union. We won, uh, you know, staffing requirements which everybody everybody said they would it was a non-starter they would never give it to us we want it and we want a bunch of other things besides and that is the power that labor has when you say no 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 the only way you get back to work is you come through us and you give us what our members demand we can win it and so when i talk to iatsi members and they say my god we really need better turnarounds we got we need eight hours of sleep right well this is how you get it because the company was oh it's too expensive we can't afford it sorry sorry here's a little bit of a minor move to to make you feel better well if you withhold your labor you can get what you actually need that's what that's what we proved and i i hope other unions take uh, you know wield their power the same way and we'll be with them if they do and now all eyes are going to be turning to SAG-AFTRA, which there are no talks yet on the books with the AMPTP, but I think the assumption is that that's coming soon. And now, obviously, performers and writers have very different issues, but there are some things that overlap when, you know, you're talking about AI, when you're talking about streaming residuals, you know, how much of a of a template, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, how much of a template and sort of an advantage do you think this gives SAG as they're looking at things, um, you know, particularly around some of the, the specific things they're looking for, like revenue share? Sure. Well, look, we have very different issues. Um, and so if you look at our proposals, most of them do not pattern onto each other to use labor law lingo. Um, but what I think should pattern is the fact that we broke pattern, <laughs> right? Um, because the AMPTP strategy is when one union goes on strike, they go to a more compliant union, they impose a deal on them, and then they try to impose that deal on everybody else and say, well, this was good enough for that union, you should take it, right? That's what they did to the DGA this year, tried to pattern it onto us. And guess what? We broke that pattern. We said, no, not good enough. We need improvements everywhere. You know, we need a view-based residual. Um, and so SAG-AFTRA should be able to take that same leverage and say, we're on strike two. We also expect to break that pattern, to break what you said is, is the most you'll give us and win big gains, you know? So e even on stuff like um, AI, for example, our AI provisions don't pattern directly onto SAG-AFTRA because, I mean, when you're talking about technology that can output words, right, versus technology that can reproduce someone's performance. These are not even similar technologies. Calling them both AI is just marketing gobbledygook, right? We're talking about completely different technologies. But the fact that we got strong terms that will protect writers from technologies being used to undermine their wages and working conditions, SAG-AFTRA should be able to go in and get the same thing, even though every single word of their contract is going to be different on those points. And let's dig into the AI portion of that, because that's yeah. an issue that really came to the fore over these last four and a half months, I think maybe more than many folks were expecting, you know, tell help us break down exactly what it is uh, that that that's in this contract right now. I mean, my understanding is that AI can't write or rewrite the literary material. And then there are also some disclosures that the, the companies have to make, um, you know, if to writers, if there are any AI generated materials. And then there's also uh, this last one, which is that the WGA reserves the right to assert that exploitation of writers' material to train AI is prohibited by this minimum basic agreement. 
Yep. I mean, you basically nailed it. Uh, you know, we got rather than just some blanket, uh, oh, you know, AI won't be used to replace a writer or that kind of thing. We got specific terms that prevent them from using AI in our workflows um, and from using it to undermine our wages and working conditions. So AI technology, uh, you know, we're talking about large language models here. Uh, they cannot be used to write a script. They cannot be used to edit a script after the fact. Um, we cannot be forced to use large language model software like ChatGPT. It is not banned if both the company and the writer consent to using it to some degree. Say you want to use it as a thought starter or whatever, you know, um, like magnetic poetry. Oh, I, I mush some words around, then I edit them. You know, if people want to do that, fine, and the company and the writer both consent to it, whatever. Um, but, you know, there might be other company policies that come into play regarding copyright that might prevent um, them from doing that. Um, and uh, then on the final point, you know, talking about training AIs based on uh, writer-produced work and the commercial exploitation of those training, et cetera, et cetera. We reserve the right to assert our rights over any part of that process for anything that might come up in the future, right? So if they develop a revenue stream off of training our, I don't know, they, they chew up all the scripts and they start outputting shitty novels on Amazon or something, right? We reserve the right to go take a look at uh, what that is, say, is this um, uh, violating either the copyright law or or the separated rights that writers have under our MBA, because even when we sell our work, um, we still retain certain rights called separated rights. Um, and uh, we, and you know, litigate that, right? Either in negotiation or through, uh, you know, the, the uh, enforcement process that we use to litigate all MBA re related uh, activities. So it's, it's a very, it's very broad. It's been inaccurately reported in some places as studios have the right to train. It's like, we both reserve our rights under the MBA. Um, and so it's sort of a, a site of future battle is what I would say. Um, because the fact is, it, it's at this point completely unclear that this technology is going to be useful for anything whatsoever, right? Chat GPT's usage rates are already plummeting. Um, you know, Google is uh, rolling out worse and worse versions of their own large language model software. It's like, uh, you know, it, it's very gimmicky, gimmicky stuff. And, you know, it's not something where you want to assert a lot of member power to try to put a protection in against something that like may never exist. Uh, so what we have is a very broad protection against specific underminings that could happen today and uh, a lot of room to go assert the rights of writers in the future uh, for future protections. And my understanding is that AI was one of the very last sticking points in those negotiations. Is that right? That's true. It was um, uh, that very last training piece. And it was, it, look, it's one of those things, any deal uh, that I think anyone's ever been a part of, there's always some last point where the lawyers go back and forth for an extra two days and you're just like, my God, could we just get language because we're agreed on the, uh, you know, the overall principle. And it was just like, you know, the lawyers on their side, not agreeing and, and having to, you know, come, come to the, come to terms. Um, and, you know, we're happy where we ended up. And, you know, we have a reader question here about the streaming residuals part of the agreement. Um, they're asking, will this apply to shows like Suits that have found a massive second life on Netflix, or does this part only apply to streaming originals? And I assume they're talking about the, the viewership-based residuals. Yeah, the, the viewership-based residual only applies to uh, to original programming from the streamer. Um, now, we have a robust, you know, enforcement department at the Guild. That's what the Guild does, you know, 365 days a year. So if some company is trying to play fast and loose with what constitutes an original, we go in and litigate that. Um, but uh, for reuse of old material, this does not cover that. But I want to be really clear about something. 
um, our view-based streaming residual, this is us cracking the safe open, right? We wedged the crowbar in, we pulled it really hard with member power, the lock has been broken, and now every three years, we are gonna go back and enlarge that residual, right? So right now, uh, the term is, if a show or movie is watched by 20% of the subscribers in the first 90 days of the first exhibition year or any subsequent exhibition year, triggers a bonus payment. You can expect all those numbers to get better every single year and for the scope of that residual to widen as this uh, you know, continues to mature. It's very comparable to when we first got coverage of the internet um, in 2008, all we got was the coverage. We didn't have minimum terms. We didn't have minimum salary. It was all negotiable. But then every three years you go back and improve, right? Because we cracked the door open um, with the strike. And that's what we did here as well. We're like, we achieved a view-based residual for the first time. It's a historic win on par with 2008 or with 1960, which was when residuals were first invented. Um, and now it's the job of the guild to go back in and, and grow it every single year. You know, let's talk about this data component of it, right? Because this is something that we all know the studios and major entertainment companies have been very loath to give up. Um, and, you know, I assume this also sort of gives them insight into each other, into their competitors, uh, you know, data. Like how what was the what was the discussion like around that from your vantage point um, when the studios were approaching, you know, how much to give and, and sort of like how to approach both uh, viewership based residuals and data transparency? Uh, look, I mean, honestly, there previous offer in August was just transparency, right? And it was, uh, you know, we're gonna give six people at the guild confidential access to some data. And our response wasn't, we want more public transparency. It was, no, we want the money. <laughs> like, we don't just want your numbers, we want the money, motherfuckers, and they gave it to us, right? That is, the, the view-based residual is the money piece of it. So, and we still have the transparency, right? So we have the ability to, they, they give us the numbers, we have those confidential members of the guild staff uh, evaluate the numbers, and then they can share aggregate numbers on that uh, to uh, to the membership. I can't speak specifically as to what that aggregate looks like, That's that's a, a question for our staff, we'll see how it plays out. Um, but, uh, you know, again, it's a crack in the door with data transparency, but like the only reason we want the data transparency is so we can get the money. And so getting the money on the table was the far more important victory for us. And as a showrunner yourself, how do you foresee this impacting, you know, your work when you're when you've got a streaming original? Because the one thing I'll tell you that I heard all the time when I was talking to showrunners who had a Netflix series or a series on another streamer is data was really hard to come by, uh, yeah. you know, trying to get any kind of engagement data, trying to really figure out how to slice and dice the viewership data. Um, you know, like how how are you expecting that to impact your work? I mean, look, I, I, my belief is that in terms of that sort of more public data, like, you know, the sort of data your agent or lawyer might use to get you a, a bigger bump in the second year, that's going to come out over the next couple of years. Because look at what's happening to the business. Advertising is coming back in. What do advertisers need? Data. Because advertising is a public market, you know, and they're going to need to, they're going to need to do upfronts, you know, and guess what you need to do at upfronts? Tell people which shows are doing well. So you can tell, so you can explain to them why one show costs more than another, right? The era of them being able to clamp down on all of this uh, so harsh 
is not going to last that long. And so I look at our transparency that we won as one more chip in that avalanche. Um, but, you know, I don't I don't agree with the premise that, you know, some people in the press have floated that it was the Writers Guild's responsibility to go open the lockbox and make all the numbers public for the rest of the town. Like, you know, if the agents think they're so powerful and they want the data so bad, they get it. You know, let, let them go get it, right? Or if the press wants it, that the, the press can go get it. Or if the advertisers want it, they can go get it. Or like, I don't know, why don't we all start like, uh, like you know, Nielsen was a third party that did, the, did all this for a hundred years, right? And they're still doing their measurements. So, um, you know, the I, to me, this is like a, a little bit less of a uh, pressing issue that like the guild needs to go solve for everybody because it's, it's going to happen just in the changes that are that the industry is undergoing. I mean, these companies are currently in the business of reproducing broadcast and cable television. They're adding advertising, they're adding sports, you know, they're, they're adding news. Pretty soon they're going to be adding late night and daytime TV. And I mean, look, look at Amazon, right? Like, uh, you know, suddenly everything is going to have ads on it. Like this is the era of, you know, five little HBOs, none of whom tell you their numbers because they're little, they're little black boxes. That's going to look like a blip 10 years from now, because we are hurtling back towards an open market. And one more, just follow up on that. Just so, just so I was trying to parse through the language of that data and the agreement this morning. So, you know, the WGA does the six members do get that data from the companies and then they use that to determine the bonuses. Is that kind of right? And then they send an aggregate report to membership about the data is that kind of the flow of information there or uh... i can't speak to if the data that they are providing via the transparency is the same data that is going to determine the streaming bonuses right okay. the, the, the the viewership based streaming residual um like uh that that's a little bit uh, above my pay grade what i what i can tell you is that just like with any residual, um, we are going to be tracking whether or not the companies are giving us honest numbers on that. Um, and, you know, we have enforcement. We do that all the time. So, for instance, when I say 20% of the subscribers watch it in the first, you know, 90 days, well, we are we are currently uh, enforcing with the companies, what do they count as subscribers, right? Because they all measure their subscribers differently. And are some of them playing fast and loose to inflate their subscriber numbers? Because, say, maybe everybody gets a free subscription with their new phone. And should that actually count count as a subscription or not? You know, that's a, that's the sort of thing that the guild does every single day. We also have to do that with traditional residuals, right? You have to you have to make sure that the companies are are playing fair. Um, now, like I said, as to whether those are the same data set, I'm not entirely sure on that. I could go email a staff member and get back to you in a couple of days, <laughs> but you know, right? No, residuals have existed for decades, and it will follow those patterns of you can audit it yep. and it's supplied and along those lines of just it's just now for a streaming bonus of twenty percent. Uh, so exactly. Forth, so, but a, yeah. a big point of the data transparency, though, uh, the point for us is we can use it to make future proposals, right? Once we have sure. data from them on what shows are doing well, what their total viewer numbers are, well, that can inform our proposals in three years, six years, nine years, et cetera. This isn't a one-time fits all, we're done kind of situation. Exactly. You know? It's it's a battle that never ends, right? And we, right. Won a, we won a giant victory using the power of our members, but we're going to be fighting every single day. Yeah. Yeah. There's been some five months of, uh, you know, of a strike to get a three-year deal, but I'm like, a lot of this stuff isn't just for this three-year deal. The model shape, you know, this, this is a, this is some structural change to how the business works in a sense yeah. where, you know, and uh, one thing I do want to and talk on the, the writer's rooms for a second. And I guess uh, there was one caveat I read, I read that I want to just clarify that writers who still want to write 
all eight episodes can do that for their series, right? Is that uh, in terms of how that works? Or can you walk me through that a little so, bit? Yes. So, so one of our biggest victories is that we established for the first time minimum staffing levels for writers' rooms, both for mini rooms or development rooms before a green light and after a green light. They have to hire a certain number of writers. Um, and the the point of that was that the companies have been trying to eliminate the writers' room and shrink it, um, and you know put us all on a freelance basis, which would have transformed television writing from being a career or a middle-class career into a gig job. And so we have prevented them from doing that um, by requiring that there be a writer's room. The exception that we allowed in the uh, MBA is that if a, if a single writer is contracted to write every single episode all by themselves, then the minimums do not apply. Um, the, the reason we allowed that is because it is vanishingly rare. Only a few shows every single year are written that way. And in fact, many of the ones that are reported in the press as being written by a single person, in fact, have staffs. Um, so it, you know, it, you, you start listing shows that are written this way. You can't get past three or four. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, uh, allowing that exception was the way that we got minimum staffing into the contract. And it was worth it because we are protecting 99% of writers with this, uh, with this provision. Yeah. And it does allow flexibility. Look, some writers want to work that way. You don't want to limit creativity on your end either. If someone does want to do it, there is a means for them to do it. Yes. But I, I want to be clear about something because yeah. you often hear, heard people say, well, why not just let the showrunner choose? Mm. And that is not good enough because I say this in my position as a showrunner, I don't get as many choices as people think, right? Often when a show is picked up, they say, we'll pick up the show if you do X, Y, Z. Right. And so if we had left it up to the showrunner, hey, this is the minimum minimum staffing level, unless the showrunner disagrees, they would say, hey, we'll offer you this show uh, only if you do you opt out of the minimum staffing. Right. And that would have put way too much pressure, especially on first time showrunners like myself. I mean, when I when I was first showrunning Adam Ruins Everything, I never saw a budget. I was told how many writers I would be able to hire. Um, and, the, you know, there's there's a big, big difference between, you know, the big, you know, the giant showrunners of the world and the people who are, you know, uh, someone who's running a show for the first time. And that's the majority of showrunners. Um, so th the thing is, in this case, the showrunner must be contracted to write every single episode. And that is actually quite rare because um, most writers simply A, don't want to do it, B, can't physically do it. It's rare to be able to write an entire season of television by yourself. So you're either talking about a super small miniseries or you're talking about, you know, someone with, uh, you know, a, a super vet who has a very special work way of working, blah, 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 blah. There's a very small number of those people. Um, but if we just left it up to, hey, if the showrunner wants to, that would be used against our members um, because, uh, you know, so much of this industry is, the executives telling you, don't you want to do it that way? But it's really them telling you that's the only way you get to do it. And that's what we we, we stop that pressure from being uh, exerted on them to hurt them. Got one more reader question. Um, there was a report apparently that mentions, quote unquote, last minute demands from the guild, which is apparently what the studio side had said happened. Um, you know, walk us through a little bit about what happened. I, I think, you know, that, yeah. that Friday or Saturday before before everything came to a deal. So uh, I just want to be really clear about something. Our policy as the Writers Guild is we do not comment on negotiations as they are underway. So when you see something in the press about here's what's happening in the room, it is always coming from the studio side or perhaps from agents. Uh, and 
those are on purpose always designed to make the guild look bad, right? Um, so now that the cone of silence is removed, I can tell you what actually happened, which is that um, we were in there with, with our proposals. Uh, we brought them, uh, you know, they, they had moved on a bunch of things. We then said, hey, we still have all of these other proposals outstanding. You have still not responded to them. These are proposals that we gave you, you know, back in March. And the people who had were presented with those proposals uh, had never read them. And so they said, oh, this is all new stuff. I was like, no, this isn't new. This is all stuff that we proposed months and months ago that we were reminding them about, but they hadn't read them in a couple months. And they were like, oh, what's all this new stuff when it was stuff that had been on the table the entire time. So that was a, uh, you know, false and kind of funny reaction on their part that where they then told people, oh, it was a bunch of new stuff. But like, this was this was old business. Um, and, you know, negotiations went on after that point because we still had those points on the table and we we discussed all of them. Well, Adam, I'm going to wrap up with one final question here. I'm going to look back on. Let's call him uh, Adam uh, May 2nd, 2023, uh, besides perhaps the 148 uh, days later here. Um, what would have surprised him the most about how this process went as we stand here with, with the deal here as October starts uh, I don't know, outside the length? What surprised you about how this one, you know, looking back on going into it uh, back in early May? You know, the fact is I wasn't surprised by that much because I knew, as did the rest of our leadership, how our membership felt about uh, this process and what we needed. I knew that we would hang together until the end. And so I knew that we would win and I knew that we would win on all these points. You know, we wouldn't we didn't win on literally everything, but on every point that matters to writers, we got something and we knew that that was going to happen. I think the big surprises for us were we didn't anticipate the ground swell of support we had from every other union in town. We didn't anticipate that SAG-AFTRA would join us on the picket lines and then go on strike, massively increasing our leverage. We weren't sure that IATSE and the Teamsters would respect our picket lines and add to our leverage that way. And so we didn't expect that level of support. Something else that surprised me was I didn't anticipate how much um, the so many of the people who we pay to represent us in this town actually were working against their own talent uh, during this process. Um, because you know, there were times where I'll just tell you about one day. This was this was like a shock to me. We were sitting in the negotiating room in August and we were waiting for a counter from the companies. And we suddenly heard that our members were getting phone calls from their agents en masse telling them that they had heard a deal was closed um, and oh, it's excited. They just closed a few hours ago. Um, and we're like, we're waiting for a counter. Like, that's not what happened, right? We eventually realized what happened was the companies were about to give us a counter. It was their, you know, their, their sort of like uh, slightly improved version of the DGA deal from, you know, mid-August that they were trying to impose on us that was didn't address any of writers' needs. And then they had sent the word out for all the agents to call their clients and um, tell them uh, a deal was closed in order to get their hopes up so that it would be harder for us to say, hey, this deal is not good enough, right? Um, and not ever like a lot of people did not do this, but I was shocked at, at how many did just like sort of carry the water right for uh, the people that we employ them to negotiate with us against. Um, I'm really thankful to, you know, uh, uh, my agency and a bunch that, that didn't do this, but I, I found it really shameful how many people were willing to work against, you know, their, their, their own folks' needs. Um, and, you know, it's, it's something that, like, I really hope we can improve in the future because, you know, we're, we're all on the same side on, uh, on talent here. And, uh, you know, again, this, I, I think it's a minority of people who did it, but it was, it was um, surprising to see um, how much 
to see the companies weaponize the rumor mill uh, in that way um, as a deliberate strategy and to see so many people go along with it and to see the press go along with it in many, many cases. And that's why I'm so appreciative to you folks at The Ankler because you're one of the only outlets who reported on the deliberate efforts of the rumor mill, right? Who said, okay, this is a rumor that is going around. We don't know where it, it seems like it came from an agency or it seems like it came from the companies. This is a rumor as opposed to reporting it as fact because um, it is the case that the companies use the rumor mill in order to try to hurt labor. Um, and many in people in the representation business and in the press go along with it, either out of ignorance or out of just uh, for fun, or I, I don't know why. Um, and we, as the writer's skills, don't, don't do that. And um, it's, it's a dynamic that happens in every single negotiation. It didn't work this time because it's, it's you know, we had social media on our side. Um, it's not 2008 anymore. You know, people don't just read, you know, deadline and get scared. They actually talk to each other. Uh, but you know, it's, it's like, it was so obvious to us in the room because rumors would go out there that had no basis. In fact, I'm sitting in the fucking room going, this is whatever people are saying today. The, the rumor of the day is obviously not true. Here I am. And the rumor is clearly designed to frighten our membership and try to fracture us. Um, and it was so obvious and, and in many ways, a little, a little, uh, it was disheartening to see how many people went along with it. Um, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, it didn't really make a difference because, um, you know, the, the company strategy of just spreading whispers of, of oh, oh, they're fracturing, blah, 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 um, had, it, it had no uh, hope of being effective against 10,000 members standing together and refusing to give these companies another iota of work until we got what we needed. And because we hung together in the face of the rumors and um, all of that, uh, we were able to to get a deal that, you know, on every single point they said they would never give us, they bent on it. And um, it's, uh, I'm really, really proud of it. And I, I hope it, it serves as a marker to folks of the power that labor has, the power that talent has in this town and what we can do when we stand together. Well, right there, Adam, it's, uh, congratulations on the deal. Congratulations on being back to work uh, today officially. So uh, really great news and a great moment for for the town. How people? How can people find you uh, on socials? How does how does this all work for you? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, I uh, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Conover. I make uh, YouTube videos on my YouTube channel. Uh, that's what I've been doing uh, during the strike and and even before. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, if anyone wants to take a general, send me a DM because <laughs> we're we're back in business. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Adam. This was great. Hey, thank you. Uh, and of course, you can subscribe uh, to Elaine Strike Guys newsletter, 100% free over at strikeguys.com. Elaine, I guess, uh, you know, uh, your time in the strikes isn't quite over. You'll be back out on the on the lines. We are one strike down and one strike to go. So I am still here, my friends. Yes. The inbox is still open, of course, for people to reach you. Elaine at theankler.com. There you go. Uh, and if for some reason you don't already subscribe uh, to The Ankler, of course, theankler.com is where you can uh, sign up for the newsletters and podcasts, including my daily wake up newsletter. Uh, I am the Sean Mack on Twitter. Uh, Adam, again, thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much. Really great insight. We appreciate your time. And uh, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.